Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Mastery. I'm excited to have Prana Khan, who's a general partner at CIV, uh, based in San Francisco. She focuses on enterprise software, SaaS, cloud, and mobile, and has been investments in Workstream and Storyboard. Before joining the firm in 2019, uh, Anna was a vice president at Bessemer Venture Partners and a Forbes 30 Under 30 VC awardee. Anna uh, is a triple major and holds a BA with honors from Stanford University and MBA from Harvard University. Uh, welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, you know, you, you have an interesting journey because you, you grew up in Pakistan and then you, you know, you made your way into the US and into the world of venture capital. Now, how was your, uh, your childhood growing up in Pakistan? Yeah, I uh, I mean, most people do, but I uh, remember my childhood very fondly. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting facts about growing up in Pakistan is that I lived in a joint family system, which is um, actually pretty common outside of the United States. But in my case, not only did my grandmother live with us, um, but also three of my uncles, my aunts, and each of them had three kids. So no. the house was just all, you know, completely full of people, you know, full of a lot of laughter and happiness. Um, and obviously I was very close to my own siblings, but um, as I like to say now, uh, we had different cohorts of groups. And so I was sort of the part of the eldest cohort and then we had siblings and they became another cohort and then, and then so on and so forth. But I think now as a grown up, um, I just reflect back and, and not only was that sort of just the way that I, lived so I don't know anything else but after when I came to the United States and I lived in a dorm and now when I have to interact with you know very different personalities it's not odd to me and it wasn't something that I had to sort of grow into it was just um almost in my DNA kind of having exposure and being around people that were very different uh, than me I mean you know all my cousins today they're all over the world I mean some are in the U.S., some are in Pakistan. All of us have different passions, um, and and that's something that was sort of very particular uh, about Pakistan. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you know, a lot of people have have heard about Pakistan in the news. It wasn't always the most um, politically stable place, uh, but I think what it taught me was that uh, truly, what matters is 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 your family and your health and your safety. And of course, we are very lucky to have the careers that we do and, and, and to be part of, you know, and for me personally to be part of such an interesting industry. Um, but when those things aren't stable, like you really truly value, you know, uh, a roof over your head and, 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 and loved ones and, and just kind of safety. Um, and I think I, I never, ever, ever take that for granted um, because uh, in Pakistan, it wasn't always clear. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you made your way into uh, into Stanford and, and later on Harvard. Uh, did you always want to get into, into venture capital? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a better story there. The reality is that um, some of my close friends know this, but actually I wanted to go to Stanford to either be a human rights lawyer. I mean, again, it's sort of what I just talked about. Like, I really did care about um, kind of stability and giving people those basic human um, rights. Uh, obviously I'm not a human rights lawyer. I wanted to be either that or I wanted to be a genetic engineer because I loved kind of, um, 
biology and, and, and just how much we could do with understanding uh, a person's genetics. Um, and so, no, I had no idea about um, what venture capital was. Frankly, this is embarrassing to say, and definitely not the case at Stanford anymore, but um, probably till I was a senior, I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was in college. And now tech is so pervasive, but back when I went into school, um, it wasn't yet like, yes, we knew what entrepreneurs were, but like, we didn't know what the people behind the entrepreneurs were at all. Um, and so it, it, it was very new to me and tech itself was very new to me. Actually, I attribute a lot of my fascination, um, uh, with tech to two professors at Stanford that kind of pulled me in and it was the way that they taught their classes and they exposed tech to me that I realized, oh, wow, this is actually the fastest and most accelerated way to make change in the world. Um, and so that always was kind of my underpinning and my foundation. Um, and when I saw like, oh, actually I am in Silicon Valley and I'm right next to Sandhill Road and all these people are doing amazing things and they're not waiting for governments to change things. They're not waiting for societies to change things. Um, and so what if we can create change through this? And if you see actually in all my a lot of my investments, it's truly software that I believe is making someone's life better, you know, um, not to downplay consumer investments, which I think are really great or, or investments that kind of make your social life better. For me, it's, you know, I, I sort of say, I, I like to invest in software um, that's for the forgotten worker, you know, those that are still um, kind of overpowered with manual processes and who, um, you know, uh, can't, uh, uh, you know, what, what's the best word augment their own skill set, And I love software that helps them, um, helps them do that. So no short answer is I did not know what venture capital was, but yeah, it was those two professors, um, professor Steve Blank and professor Robert McGinn, who kind of shared that amazing world of tech. And when I was exposed to it, actually my junior senior year, I kind of fell in love and, and I've been in it ever since. And that, that's interesting. And, you know, you, you work with uh, Pesimir and Perbit. You went out to source startups like uh, Intercom and Storyboard and Workstream. You know, how did you go about, uh, you know, sourcing startups? Uh, were you involved in accelerators and, you know, universities? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, um, so I started my venture career, you know, not as a partner. I started as an analyst, which I'm actually very proud of because I think it taught me the most important thing about venture capital, which is having your ear to the ground and being able to find new companies. Like no matter how senior I am now, um, it's truly the crux of the job. Like you can't do diligence on a deal if you haven't, if you don't know about it, you can't win a deal if you don't know about it, you can't serve on the board if you don't know about it and getting to know about something. If you wait till people tell you about it or the groups of investors tell you about it, it's already too late. And so I would say Bessemer, when I first joined, I, I was very young at the time. I was 21, 22. You know, they just taught me how to source. And, and um, it was my only job to do. You know, I was too junior to lead deals um, at the time. Uh, partners did that. But our job was you come in every day and you find the best companies. And so everyone finds the best companies in different ways. Um, you know, some people have a pretty amazing, vast network, depends on the school they went to. Maybe they went to Stanford, maybe they went to Harvard, whatever. Um, some people, uh, uh, you know, 
write a lot and use their content. I definitely leaned on that. I love to write. I love to use social media to talk about what I cared about. I still do that to a certain extent, but back then I did it even more. Um, and, and I think other people, which I also leaned on, um, just use that kind of personal connection with the entrepreneur that was always really important to me. And so for me, investing and sourcing has never been uh, just a business transaction. Like the first thing I ask an entrepreneur, and I used to do this even when I sourced, is like, I'm on a, this is who I am. This is my story. These are the kinds of products that I really care about. Who are you? Like not what your LinkedIn says, but like, what's your personal story and why are you building this? Right. Is it just that you think it has a, you know, uh, $3 billion TAM or is there more? Um, and so I think asking those questions and at the time, I don't think people ask those questions. I mean, now people are much better with founders and founders have a lot more control and people care about those stories. But I would say a decade ago, venture capital was very transactional. And so I think asking those questions set me apart a little bit. And then, you know, beyond all that, that's a little bit fuzzy. Um, To be a good sourcer, you just also have to have volume. Like I never felt like sending a cold email was beneath me. Actually, still, some of my best days are when I have time to send cold emails, like when I can sit on the internet, go and search awesome new products, have some time to think and send cold emails. And so I did a lot of that. And out of a variety of those things that I just mentioned, I was able to find um, kind of intercom and workstream and others, which I've been very lucky to, to have invested in. And you, you you talked about like you, your analyst at Bismarck. You know what were some of the biggest takeaways from working with uh, Bismarck venture partners? Yeah, I mean, you know, Bessemer is um, uh, one of the top analyst programs because again, Inventor has changed so much. So I always like to give the history. A decade ago, there were very few firms that took a bet on young people. Actually, they didn't. They said, you know you're either going to come in to be a venture capitalist if you've built and sold a company or honestly, if you've been an investor for 10 years, otherwise you have nothing to contribute to us. And there were a few firms at the time. And I started off in the East coast, actually insight uh, union square ventures to a certain extent and Bessemer. And they were the ones that said, actually, we don't want to wait till someone has experience somewhere else and bring them on board. We actually want to train people and grow them within our own organization. And Insight does the same thing. And so um, honestly, I learned a lot about what venture capital was um, at Bessemer. Again, to my earlier point, just the importance of sourcing. I mean, Bessemer is the type of firm that like, I would always joke and say, we did all the important stuff and none of the fancy stuff in venture. And so like, we were not the firm hosting the big parties and the happy hours and, but, you know, if an entrepreneur cared about a market and wanted to talk to us about that, like we were the ones that would nerd out with him or her. Um, and so I think those are the foundations that I learned. Just like it matters, like know what you're talking about, ask the right questions, have a lot of humility, and don't forget that sourcing is the heart of venture. I would say those were the kind of the key things that I took away. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, you working at CRV uh, as, a, as a venture partner, what, what are the three core elements that you look for uh, in every deal? Uh, do, you, do you focus more on, uh, on on the team or the market uh, or, or, or the opportunity? 
You know, I do, I do wish there was sort of um, one key thing. It's, it usually is a combination of things and, and every partner is going to say something different to you. For me, the person that I'm betting on is very, very important. I actually think the best founders can even create a new market, right? It's a market that no one can see and they'll just make it happen. Um, so I do care about the person and their story and how much they want it, right? If, if, if I meet someone that just kind of, I don't know, spent a year coming up with random ideas and then just said, oh yeah, this is like good enough. That's likely not the person I want to bet in. It's the person that couldn't get the idea out of their mind because those are the people that I think will, um, there's no doubt they're going to make it work. Um, so I, I care a lot about grit and hustle and passion in a founder. I would say the second thing is, um, I do care about early product market fit. Um, and that doesn't mean you need to have millions of dollars of revenue, but early signs, something like, oh, we have a design partner that even though our product is not fully launched, that is spending you know, five hours in our product. That's a very good sign. Um, or we've done no marketing to date and we're getting all these inbound requests. Another good sign. And so when I say I like kind of product early signs of product market fit, those are the things I look for. It's harder for me, unless I really know a founder well, to say, you only have a slide deck, you don't have a product, we have no idea how the market will react, here's 5 million. That's much harder for me. Not to say we can't do that for the right founder, but yeah, I like to see kind of that, that amazing leader and then also early signs of, of product market fit. And, you know, how do you approach uh, when it comes to uh, investment decision-making process uh, among other partners in, in the firm? Yeah, at CRV, um, which is pretty special about CRV and, and our firm is um, independent partner conviction matters a lot. Um, there have been instances in, in my partnership where partners have said, I think the market is fine. Um, I probably wouldn't write the check, but on a, how much conviction do you have? And if I have a lot, then we have the independence to do that. Um, I think where we push back on another, on each other is when we sense that the other partner doesn't really have that conviction. We say, Hey, like, is this a team you really want to spend time with is, you know, it doesn't sound like you have that kind of blind conviction in the product or the team. And so one, we really care about conviction. And two, every single one of our deals are still discussed with each other. Like we do really, really care about each other's feedback. However, um, you know, everything is not dependent on investment committee because we actually believe that the best deals are contrarian bets. Like the best deals actually half the partners will not like and half of them will like. So that's where the conviction of the independent partner really comes into play. So we actually don't love it when all of us agree on one product and, 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 and one company. We actually like the discussion because if it's obvious, then the market's sort of already there, right? And, and that's, just not, that's just not venture. That's more like, I don't know, PE investing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very, very good mix of like, do you have the conviction as an independent partner? And then also you know, let's talk about it and you should at least hear our, our feedback. So every single deal 
is still discussed and um, it's actually a very rich and, and healthy discussion. Today, I have an interesting stat for you, to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. And um, I know before the, before the call, you talked about like you know most firms don't do early stage uh, investing. You know, well, well, why do you think that you know most VCs uh, are not into you know early stage investing, even though they say they they're into early stage? Yeah, I th- and this is just my opinion. There are going to be people that disagree, but I think that the larger your fund size is, the more kind of risk-adjusted return you have being able to deploy more capital and being able to see those returns come in earlier. And you see the returns come in earlier when you invest in the series C and the series D or the pre-IPO round, obviously, right? Then it's going to take three to four years versus a typical venture bet is seven to eight years if you actually invest early. Um, And so I think the larger people's funds become, they just sort of are more incentivized to invest bigger dollars um, so that they can invest and allocate their funds. And so the idea of, you know, doing seeds and then taking up one slot for 2 million seed just doesn't make sense for them. But when you have a, a fund size like ours, which there are very few left, I think a similar CRV model is Union Square Ventures, is Benchmark. You know, we're not raising the huge, huge funds that become more like growth and PE deployment. And we're just like, no, we, you know, we want to stay true to core early stage investing. And we truly want to be that first check in. And, you know, what are the biggest mistake founders make when, when they meet VCs? Mm, that's a really good question. Um. I think in my experience, it's pretending to know what they don't know. Um, No one expects them to have all the answers, but what will look very bad and will lead us to lose trust in them is when if we ask a question, they give an answer that they don't know. Uh, And, and, I'd rather, and, and a lot of my entrepreneurs, if they don't know, they say, you know what? That's a really good question. Let me get back to you. And those are more thematic questions. What, what I will judge a founder for is, you know, when you ask very simple questions about numbers of like, you know, founder, what's your sales quota? Or, you know, what's your projection for end of year? And those numbers founders should literally dream about. I mean, they should know the business without even looking at the slide. They should always have the answers to that. But the more strategic uh, answers, like it's okay to not know. And that's what we are there for. Um, We're there to kind of help them suss out the answers. And I'd rather they be upfront with what they don't know rather than pretend to be um, kind of, you know, perfect, but that, that kind of loses trust if, if, if it's not accurate. And then I'd say, um, the other mistake founders make, and, um, uh, this is kind of funny coming from a VC because sometimes we use this to our advantage is founders sometimes give VCs too much time to deliberate. 
And, you know, now that's changed so much because I mean, the market is absolutely nuts and, and deals are going down in three days. So, but let's, let's take that aside. Sometimes first-time founders truly tell an investor, oh, sure, like you can take a month to decide if you want to invest. And my shortcut or like secret is it never takes a month for an investor to decide. And if they're taking a month, they're basically, you know, trying to not say no or trying to avoid um, the obvious. And so always hold an investor to a timeline. Don't give a timeline that is unattainable. You know, when sometimes I meet an entrepreneur for the first time and they say, I'm making a decision tomorrow. Can you give me a term sheet? I'm like, no, like I need to do my work. I could probably move really fast and do it in a week, but no, I cannot do it in 24 hours if I don't know the space. Um, But, you know, max, I would give someone two to three weeks. Like this is our job. And if we're really interested in what you're doing, we will work fast to diligence quickly. And so if someone's saying, oh, it's going to give me a month, then, you know, they're likely talking to a competitor and they're not that enthusiastic about you. And you should get, you know, get that message and move on to a fund and an investor that is, you know, putting you top of mind and prioritizing you. And, um, you know, a follow-up on that, how, how transparent should founders be of the other meetings uh, with other investors? Yeah, very good question. I think you should never say um, the fund name and never give the other prices you're getting. Um, you know, t- today I always like to um, give advice to, to founders that are just starting to fundraise, especially if they're, if they're in my own portfolio and they're going out to raise another round of like, you know, you don't have to give anyone names. You don't have to give, actually, you're not supposed to. In the term sheet, it says you cannot share those numbers. Do not say that, oh, CRV is giving us, you know, 80 post for a, you know, X million dollar check. Do not share that. But you can say to, to another team, look, you're not the highest price but you're in the range. You can also say, I really like you, but I need you to move a little bit faster because I already had three partner meetings on Monday. That is also fine to share. And it just speeds things up. So I would, and then, you know, if they say, oh, what kind of dilution do you want? You can give a dilution number. Um, So you can, you know, and you can obviously tell them what you're raising. Just don't tell them what other people are offering you. Um, and then I would say the last thing is be very, very careful. Never lie because VCs always talk to each other. And so if a founder tells me that, let's say, let's say I, I, um, I'm, I'm competing on a deal with Bessemer. And if a founder tells me on a, you know, Bessemer already gave me a term sheet and they're giving me a term sheet at 150 posts and you're only giving it to me for 100. Like I could find out eventually down the road that Bessemer never gave that term sheet and that'll not be, you know, a great kind of, um, I will not have a great opinion of the founder for sharing that. And VCs talk a lot. And so I would always say, unless something is, one, actually never give the details, but Unless you've actually had three partner meetings, don't tell someone you've had three partner meetings. If you actually have no others, you can say something like, you know, um, we are talking to other investors and we're hoping to just work with the right partner for us, right? Just never lie because it will come back to you if you do. 
Correct. And uh, you know uh, how do you, how do you test for a founder's ability to to execute an, an on an idea uh, when you're meeting them very early on? Very good question. I think um, a lot of it is just gut instinct. I think founder references help. Um, although obviously they're going to put you in touch with people that have had good experiences with them. So it's good to do some back channel references as well. Um, but I think you can get a sense of someone's execution style, the more time you spend with them. And so I just try to spend as many hours with the founder before making an investment in, in these times, that's not a lot of hours, but it's better than just making a decision after the first meeting. Um, but look, it's, it's, it's a huge risk. Some people, you know, let's say they've been a PM at Google or at an amazing company and perform very well there. Sometimes when they move more into a startup scenario, they're not as great. And so that's just, it's part of the risk of, of, of being a VC and, and investing. But um, typically I would say for, for other investors on the podcast, like following your gut instinct and then also relying a little bit on reference calls and just sheer time you spend is, is usually good. And, and you know, what advice would you give to founders when they're looking to recruit and, you know, grow their teams, especially in the early days? Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I sit on a board with, with an awesome seed investor called Ben Ling. Um, and we were talking to one of our companies and he invests actually much more in seed companies even than I do. I mostly, I do seeds, but I also do A's. And he was saying that the advice he gives his um, uh, founders, which you know, I would love to say is my advice, but I have to give him attribution, is in the early days, they should be spending like 70 to 75, 80% of their time hiring. Um, which is, you know, when you tell a founder, they're like, no, well, I need to like be working on code and I need to be like making my marketing website. But it's like, no. The more you do that, the more in the hole you get of not having enough people to delegate to. And in the early days, you have to just hire, 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 and then people know kind of what they need to be working on. And yes, you have to plug in holes. That's why we didn't say 100% of your time. But the early days, it should be um, all about hiring. And I would say how to hire. I mean, in all my companies, hiring is top priority. And it's really hard right now because I would say... Um, remote has actually given people the ability to work anywhere. And so now they can work anywhere, but also work for the top companies. And so competing with a, you know, they don't have to move to San Francisco anymore to work for Google. And so competing with that kind of salary for an early stage company is really, really hard. Um, and it's one of their biggest struggles in this market. Um, and so, you know, the, the other piece of advice I say is, look, there's only so much you can do with with um, recruiting firms, like if hiring is that important and you're still a limited team, I would just hire an internal recruiter. Like it's worth it to have someone whose job it is to help you recruit. And once you have like a steady team, you know, 10, 15 people, the job gets much, much easier. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, remote work, but um, how, do you, how do you build that relationship or trust in vulnerability with, with, the, with the portfolio uh, company founders? Uh. Yeah. You know, the world has really changed a lot since the pandemic. The first time that we sort of moved to video, it was very uncomfortable for everybody. Like even me talking to my partners about a deal that I wanted to do, the fact that I wasn't in the same room made communication much more tough. 
And right. the thought of giving millions of dollars to people that you never had a meal with was um, even harder. And it took us a while to sort of start doing that. But a lot of funds started doing it. We started doing it. And now, honestly, like it's not ideal. I would love to have a coffee or a meal with somebody before, you know, starting a 10 year business relationship, eight, 10, however long it takes. Um, but it's just, I mean, the pandemic will not allow that. And as you can see, you know, things happening with Delta, I don't think we're going to be going back to normal anytime soon. Um, and so frankly, we just got used to it. And um, now it's hard, but you can still develop that level of trust just by sheer number of hours on Zoom. Uh, you know, Zoom is better than a phone call. Um, I would say the one advantage of all of this that I hear from founders <laughs> is that when founders had to fundraise, they literally were not in the office anymore. They were on planes. They didn't see their families. They were stuck in Ubers on Sand Hill Road going from one meeting to the other. It was high stress and not a great use of their time. Now, I've seen founders pitch six firms in one day, which you could not do because of sheer travel time. Um, and so they're incredibly empowered. And the fact that they can shut that down and then start a meeting with their own team so that they're still involved while they're fundraising is amazing. Otherwise, they were away from the office for two, three weeks, four weeks while fundraising. And so founders love this. Um, yes, they do miss hanging out with us. And sometimes actually, you know, with masks on, we can go for a walk or with masks on, we can sort of, you know, get a coffee. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, it makes it harder to, you know, see body language and, and really jive with somebody, but it's also like the whole world has, is now doing business on zoom. And so we've just, I think humans and investors and founders have just adapted. Um, but founders actually, even post pandemic, they may, they may actually prefer Zoom fundraising to in person because of how much breathing room it gives them, and, and it gives them more power. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Zoom has really helped our uh, founders a lot. And, uh, uh, you know, you recently invested into Cord uh, and, the, and the founder of Cord, uh, Eric Lando, came on uh, one of the episodes, which is uh, 193, we'll put that in the show notes. What made you invest into Cord and how did you do the diligence since uh, the company is based out of London? Yeah, well, um, you know, I did the diligence sort of how I do any of, of, of my diligence exercises. They were um, uh, very nice to introduce me to some of their early customers. I had also done a lot of market work um, in that market, sort of, you know, data labeling and automation. Um, and I relied a little bit on my own network of people that have invest, invested in and around the space. Um, and you know, if you're a software investor, you kind of just see the reality that is there is more data for us to make sense of. And you could keep on outsourcing it, but 
the more data you have, the more you realize how specific and, and, and um, you know, the fact that a lot of it is proprietary and private, and you'd like to actually be able to make sense of it and label it internally. And Cord is one of those tools. And, and I very much believe in sort of end-to-end automation, not having to rely on human beings um, doing manual work. And so the fact that they had cracked the code on that, um, I thought was an incredible technical feat and they had already achieved that. And so the rest of it is just about, you know, making that better, but also um, just kind of GTM, go to market and being able to get in the hands of, of a lot of customers. And frankly, you know, I met them before they had even graduated YC and I had not met a company in my career that had made so so much progress while being in YC. Um, and so they just impressed me on, on multiple dimensions. Um, and Eric also, you know, we had a connection in that we were in the same class at Stanford. Um, and so just having that trust sort of as, as, um, as former alums helped. Um, and, and yeah, and, and sort of the rest is, the rest is history. I'm a, I'm a very, very happy investor there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a you know a pleasure meeting with Eric uh, in his London office. And um, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Actually, it's not a business book, but it actually has helped me um, uh, perform better, I think, and, and just be kind of more alert is this book. I actually mentioned it in, in another podcast as well called Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. Um, and I think in America, you have this culture of... Um, you know, the best people sleep very little because it's almost a, a source of pride. And uh, that book just kind of totally changed my perspective. And I realized that it wasn't actually laziness. It's actually a form of power to, to need to sleep seven, eight hours a night. And I really prioritize that. And no longer do I have that afternoon lull. And, and, and I find myself being kind of incredibly focused and, and sort of I can, I can give my best. So it wasn't really a business book, more a science book, but I learned a lot about sort of how to be most productive from that book. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started uh, uh, being in the VC world, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I think that, you know, I've always not been afraid to share my views um, and, and I've been pretty opinionated and, and, um, but it took me a while to gain that confidence, especially in the earliest days, because venture was so new to me. Like, as I said to you, you know, I had just learned about it before graduation and, and, and I felt a little bit like, um, I was an outsider in tech, but, uh, I wish I had even voiced my views and formed opinions and been brave enough to share them even in the earliest days, because actually I saw tech with truly fresh eyes. You know, now I've been in tech for so long. Um, and, and now, you know, I feel like I'm no longer an outsider in it, but I wish I could go back to the days where I truly was an outsider, because I think I had like the freshest um, experiences uh, and, and opinions. Um, and, and I wish I just would have been kind of confident enough to, to share them uh, back then in, in the earliest days. And, and look, I think if you're, uh, you know, 
open to saying, this is what I believe, but it's my opinion. And I could be wrong that people are very open to listen to you. And you don't always have to be, you know, hundred percent certain when you're just kind of sharing opinions and the world kind of, especially for female investors, like we feel like everything has to be so buttoned up and, you know, five times verified before we share our views. And yet, you know, no, no slide on men, but men are, you know, tweeting, you know, hundred tweets per second with whatever they want, but people are listening to them. And, and I wish we just sort of had more, more confidence in, in kind of speaking and using kind of social platforms to share our learnings. Absolutely. I think, I think that's a, that's a great insight. And uh, do you have any favorite online quote example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? You know, I, this is actually a very funny one. Um, I am still a very uh, engaged Evernote user. Uh, most people have sort of moved on to other tools. Um, Evernote, and then another one um, uh, that I love is uh, Apple Notes. Uh, I actually feel it is um, uh, so incredibly easy to edit, reference. Uh, and so my entire life is sort of, even on the personal side, like the places I want to travel, whether I'm like furnishing my house, what I need to buy um, is on Evernote. And then my like day-to-day to-dos to because I, I sort of live my life on my cell phone are all on sort of Apple notes. And it just makes kind of checking things off and iterating um, uh, super, super easy. But I would say my business favorite tool um, is actually my own company. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of a shout out here is um, Storyboard. Um, because you know if you are a large company and you wanna communicate with your employees, usually deskless employees, so people that are always on the move, you know, not just sitting in front of a computer. I actually think email and Slack and all these other forms are not the best, but the ability to either do training or do a standup or, um, you know, an update through audio is actually very, very powerful. Um, and Storyboard kind of helps you do that in a very uh, kind of safe, private and, and efficient way. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about uh, CEO? Yeah, I, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty prolific tweeter and, and I write a lot, a lot about my companies, why I invested in them, um, why I think they're building tools that will change the world. And so I'd encourage everyone to, um, you know, visit me on my Medium site. Uh, my Twitter handle is Anarchy, which is a play on my name with two Ys in the end. Um, and so I'd encourage you guys to, to check it out. Oh, and then uh, one other thing, I do have, um, uh, a newsletter, uh, where I give, you know, I profile, um, entrepreneurs, uh, and then I also give updates for how to pitch. Um, so fundraising, um, kind of tips for, for early entrepreneurs, uh, and it's called keeping things sassy. Um, and it's uh, about a monthly newsletter. So I promise you won't be getting that much spam, uh, but if you go to my Twitter, um, you can you can subscribe, and and I would love to have more subscribers. We'll put that in the show notes. And, uh, thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Of course, thank you so much, Rohit. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.